Our reading this morning is from Genesis 1 and 2. Starting uh, in chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now down to chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, um, God uh, made us for relationships, and uh, the most important, of course, being with Him. And He hasn't left us just to guess our way towards Him, He's given us His Word. And that's what we need to give us perspective. There's so many competing narratives for our lives. Uh, we need to hear God's Word and the story He tells that we're caught up into. So let's pray for wisdom. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, the Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, relationships aren't easy, right? Uh, they can be tough. I was reminded this week as I was thinking about that of, of Jim Gaffigan's uh, discussion about putting his kids to bed. You might know Jim Gaffigan. He's a comedian. He says, bedtime makes you realize how completely incapable you are of being in charge of another human being. My children act like they've never been to sleep before. Bed? What's that? No, I'm not doing that. They never want to go to bed. (laughs) This is another thing that I will never have in common with my children. Sometimes going to bed feels like the highlight of my day. (laughs) Ironically to my children, bedtime is a punishment that violates their basic rights as human beings. Once the lights are out, you can expect at least an hour of the inmates clanging their tin cups on the cell bars. Well, uh, look, most of our relationships, there's a lot of comedy in them too, right? I mean, they're, much of it's inadvertent. Uh, some of the stuff that you feel very frustrated about in life right now, you will end up laughing about in a few years. Uh, a lot of the things that you did when you were younger, which seemed so smart, seem so goofy now, right? Um, 
So there's a lot of comedy, but there's also a lot that haunts us about our relationships. Uh, the one that got away, the one that broke your heart, the friendships that drift apart, the churches that let you down, and the inherent mystery of other people. The book of Proverbs puts it this way in Proverbs 14.10. says, the heart knows its own bitterness, and no stranger shares its joy. Proverbs is reminding us that mystery of dealing with others. And so relationships are, you know, our greatest source of joy, but they're also our greatest source of sorrow. We started into a few weeks ago into this series in Genesis, and, uh, and we're spending four weeks on creation. The first week we thought about how we were created for God's glory. Well, really how all of creation was created for his glory, but certainly we as, his, as humans were created to give him glory. Last week, we thought about how we are created in His image and the responsibility that gives us towards the rest of creation. But this week, we're thinking about how we're created for relationships. And we're going to see that we're created for several different relationships. We're created for friendship, we're created for marriage, we're created for the church, and we're created for God. Friendship, marriage, church, God. Uh, But all that goes back to the very, very beginning here. Uh, Remember that chapter 1, we've been saying along in this series, even if you haven't been with us, chapter 1 is really set in the throne room of God. He's making all these royal declarations, and that's kind of where you're standing from, looking out over all that is being made. So heaven is always described as God's throne room, and that's really where the seven, the, you know, the, the week of creation, the seven days comes from. That's, that is, you might say, the, the view from the throne room of God. It's the God's eye view. And so when God is creating humanity on the sixth day, he, sa- he's, he says, uh, let us make man in our image. Now, who's the plural in that sentence? Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. Most uh, Jewish interpreters and, and actually quite a few Christian interpreters would say, well, look, this is clearly in the throne room of God, and so he's talking to the angels. That might be. Uh, of course, lots of Christians have also seen in this maybe a hint of the Trinity because already we see some, some distinction without differentiation in God and the Spirit, right? Because we're in the throne room and yet the Spirit is there hovering over creation, uh, in, back in verse 2, uh, elsewhere, of course, throughout the Old Testament, you see these hints of this, right? That there is God and there is also His Spirit. And they're not separable, and yet there's some differentiation made. Uh, there's also this other character who's not here in Genesis 1, but uh, also known as the angel of the Lord that shows up over and over again, who is somehow also the Lord <laughs> uh, and somehow distinct. And, and yet whatever those hints are, Throughout the Old Testament, of course, we know that it's driving us towards a Trinitarian God, uh, a God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, one in three. Uh, but whatever the case may be going on here in these plurals, uh, God, God who is relational, makes us relational creatures. And it stands out then when you get into chapter two, you've, remember we talked about this, you've kind of crossed into the world itself. You were in heaven with that perspective, and then you come crashing down to earth, right? And then 
what God has been saying we see played out on the ground. Literally on the ground, out of the <laughs> comes out of the ground. Um, and we see Adam's given this charge. And one of the things that's really curious is in verse 18 of chapter 2, God says it is not good that the man should be alone. And if you were listening in chapter 1, and I know we didn't read all this, but over and over, over again in chapter 1, in the days of creation, God says he made this, and God says it was good. It was good. Seven times. Seven times. And then he gets to the, he gets to the end, and that seventh time says, at the very end of chapter 1, it was very good. So what, what God, when God is describing creation... From the viewpoint of his throne room, he's saying it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, over and over and over again. And so, while we switched perspective, when we hear that it is not good, it should stand out. What? It's not good? I thought everything was good. Of course, the the claim isn't that Adam was somehow faulty, but that something that he was made for has not yet been completed. And we know as we were talking about some last week, as we're thinking about it a little bit more in depth this week, it is because on the one hand, the task can't be done by himself. Filling the whole earth with God's glory is a task that he will not be able to do by himself. But he also needs those profound connections. And this is where it's so helpful to understand, and so important that we understand that God, because he is relational in and of himself, makes us relational beings. That's kind of abstract way of putting it, but you know this is what we we talk about when we talk about the Trinity is that God is three in one and one in three. That's a way of <laughs> that is not a way of explaining away the mystery, but of defining the mystery. Because nobody came up with the Trinity because they were sitting around thinking, "How do I make the most sense out of the world?" No, they <laughs> the church started to formulate the doctrine out of Scripture, and what God has showed us about Himself. And there's a lot of bad metaphors for the Trinity. I won't rehearse all of them for you. Uh, they, they won't make much sense. But it is hard to define, hard to understand how God is three in one and one in three, and yet He is. And here's, here's where that makes a difference. Because God is love, Period. There's all these other things that are attributes of God that describe His character, but love is really at the heart of who He is. And 1 John will say it that way, because before He made anything in eternity past, whatever that even means, right? Before time even existed and God was there, right? That in and of Himself was love. And God didn't have to create in order to understand love. Every other God has to make something in order to understand love. Because every other version of God is out there alone or, at, or you know, is completely indifferent. is some abstract principle. But the God of the Bible is a God who knows love in and of himself and creates out of that love. Because God knows love. Creation is an overflow of his joy, of his fulfillment, of his harmony, 
in and of himself. And that's why when the Bible talks about us being made in his image, it always means that we're relational. That nothing about us isn't. And in fact, the proof is in our own loneliness. That we're relational is proven when that breaks down. Uh, Last year, before COVID ever hit, uh, one major uh, health provider did a big study of Americans and found that, get this, 46% of Americans say that they always or sometimes feel alone. 46%. Get this one. In the same study, 54%, over half, say that they always or sometimes feel that no one knows them. So we would probably be on pretty good footing to guess that that's many of us here that feel that that at least sometimes feel that no one knows us. The, uh, the, some of the studies that have started to come out in COVID are showing this is even worse. And the problem is that we think we can do without it. Many of us have been told that we, have to, that we build our identity based on what we achieve, on the image that we portray to others, And here's the problem. The more you invest in that image, the more you invest in what you achieve, the more you have to hold people at arm's length. Because if you're basing everything on what you've achieved, you're basing everything on what you look like, then the minute you let anybody in, all that starts to crumble, doesn't it? You might even say those kind of American values are destructive to us. It gets even worse, of course, being in a technocratic age because we think that we're connecting with people way more than we actually are. Sherry Turkle, who's a uh, professor at MIT, uh, wrote a book called Alone Together, which is a fascinating and depressing book. Um, she, she's thinking about the ethics of, uh, of much of our uh, uh, digital culture And this is what she says, technology is seductive when what it offers meets our human vulnerabilities. And as it turns out, we are very vulnerable indeed. She goes on to point out that we're often told that all this technology is going to meet those deep needs of being known and knowing others. And it's, look, it's not that, you know, social media is in and of itself, an instrument of the devil. It doesn't, have, <laughs> it doesn't do some good things at times. But that often the intimacy it promises is a false hope. And so bound up here in this relationship with Adam and Eve are at least three relationships. There's friendship, there's marriage, and there is the church. It's friendship because there's a task at hand. Uh, notice this, this idea here that in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, that God is going to make Adam a helper. 
Now, that word, as we're thinking about, like, the man and the woman can sound very insulting. Uh, But I think that is partly because our our English gets in the way. The word in Hebrew is the word etzer, which doesn't mean anything to anybody. But if you do a little word search in the Hebrew, you will find that the person that that is applied to most often is guess who? God. (laughs) All right. Uh, It is applied to God. There's a bunch of different places you could look. Uh, I won't cite all of them for you, but uh, one of them is Psalm 33, and this is what you read. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their souls from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. The word is used to describe somebody who ha- not, is not just an extra set of hands, but somebody who has resources, abilities, gifts that you lack. It most often describes God. So when God is talking this way, he doesn't mean anything pejorative, negative, <laughs> derivative <laughs> about the creation of Eve. He is saying... Uh, Something else is needed. Some really significant things are needed here, right? That Adam will not have by himself. Of course, we go back and into chapter 1, and we see even when God is describing the image, right? It is male and female. It is from the get-go, this claim of equality uh, in terms of value. And uh, while there may be some relational distinctions that happen, right, that neither is more valuable than the other, even from the very beginning. And so they, there is friendship here because there's a task at hand. If, if you want some good reading on friendship, go to C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves. Because uh, there's a chapter, it's, it's a little bit of a weird book. That may be an understatement. But the chapter on friendship is some of the best stuff on friendship around. And he, has, he, he describes the difference between marriage and friendship is that in marriage, two people are looking at each other most of the time. <laughs> In friendship, you're looking out at something else. And so, in fact, even others can join into that, right? You get excited about some common interest, some common concern. That's always what friendships are built around, isn't it? Is that you share this thing. And look, when you're a kid, it's like you have friends because they're just the people that you're always doing your stuff with. They live next door, or you're always in class with them. (laughs) And you have common concerns in that, right? Uh, But as you get older, ooh, that becomes a little trickier, doesn't it? Finding friendships gets harder. Finding those common concerns, those common interests is harder. But we're enriched, of course, by them. And friendship in that way is open-ended. See, marriage is optional. The Bible's pretty clear about that, by the way. (laughs) That marriage is optional, but friendship isn't. And we're called into this task of making the place a world that is, making the world a place that is full of worship. And that is a task that we do together. See, friendship is not optional, and it does gain from more friends. So Lewis uses this example in The Four Loves of his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien 
and a guy named Charles Williams, who was another writer at the time that isn't as well known anymore. But uh, this is what he says. Um, he says, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights of, than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles, meaning Charles Williams, is dead, he had died, I shall never again see Ronald, that's Tolkien, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specific Charles-like joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven, for every soul seeing him in her own way, communicates that unique vision to all the rest. You get that, the, the worship of heaven? He goes on to look at Isaiah and how the angels are always saying back to each other, holy, holy, holy. The friendship brings out those different facets. And it's, again, we, as we said, it is forged in common interest. Uh, and it is really the cure for loneliness. Uh, don't get me wrong. Marriage, of course, can, can provide companionship. I'm not denying that. But largely it is friendship. And friendship can be part of marriage too. But friendship, that is the cure for loneliness. Friendship is what is essential. Because in friendship we find common cause and understanding with one another. And it is those people that we can listen to when they confront us because we know that they will walk with us, which is why the bond of friendship isn't merely forged by common concern or interest, but is deepened by common sacrifice. And this is where I think a lot of our modern friendships fall short. Because while we want to have friends, we are not very quick to give up our time for them. And I am living in a glass house here, <laughs> throwing rocks in a glass house, but we are not quick to carve out the time that we need to carve out to care for others. We have our careers, we have our ambitions, maybe even have our own marriages and families, we have all these other things, and we are not willing to make some of those sacrifices that it takes to deepen those friendships. I wonder what that would look like in your life. What are the sacrifices it would take? But friendship, of course, is, you might say, <laughs> as weirdly as it is, one of the highest aspirations we have. The greatest relationships with God are called friendships. Abraham, James 2 tells us, was called God's friend. Moses, we are told, unique among everybody else in Israel. In Exodus 33, we're told that he is someone that God speaks to as a friend, face to face. And Jesus says this in John 15, Greater love has no one than this, that someone should lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, 
I've made known to you. Common cause and common sacrifice. He's drawn us into his cause and given his life for us. But of course, Adam and Eve is also a marriage. It is friendship, it's also marriage. Uh, That maybe is the most obvious thing (laughs) to us when we first read it. Um, It is all the features of a covenant to it. Uh, So it is like our relationship with God in a lot of significant ways. It is a whole life commitment. It is a familial tie. In fact, you make a new family when you get married. It is not a contract, an exchange of goods or services, an agreement in that way. Rather, it is a permanent bond. How do we say it? For richer or for poor? In sickness and in health. And its purpose, you know, it's, so it's got purpose to it, and pleasure is part of that, right? I mean, you actually can't miss some of the erotic language here that's, that's used. That's clearly implied. And so God brings together difference into unity. And there's a profound mystery here, right? He makes, God doesn't make some generic human, he makes male and female. And they're brought together, and Adam recognizes the priority of this relationship, right? That Eve is now bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. He'll leave his, well, he doesn't have father and mother, but everybody else will leave their father and mother, right? And, and become one flesh. And so, look, there is some differentiation here, right? I mean, obviously, there's a biological difference. And we do live in an age in which biological difference is largely discounted. And I'm not going to get into the whole discussion about that, but it is to say, and the Bible is clear about this, that the, that your embodiment, what you were given in your body, however flawed it might be, and everybody's flawed, is still a gift from God. That's still significant. And there is a difference, we are told this, that there are some differentiation in the roles within marriage. But here's the deal. It is sacrificial both ways. That's the way it's described in Ephesians 5. And again, we, this isn't a marriage sermon, so we're not going to get into all the details of that. But it is sacrificial both ways. And so Adam is on the one hand held responsible overall for this covenant. Uh, but that doesn't mean that he is a tyrant. That doesn't mean he should be... He should always have his own way in every decision they're making. But rather that he ought to... Think of the good of the other before his own good. He ought to think about Eve's good before his own. Now, it's dangerous, too, that we have sometimes grand unified theories of gender, right, that are all dangerous in one way or another. On the one hand, there tend to be conservative uh, grand theories of gender, which on the one hand recognize the givenness of our biology, but often miss that the commands and the differentiation made between man and woman in the Bible, and so I'm speaking about Christians for the most part here, the significance of those differences are only mentioned within the context of two covenantal relationships. That is to say, there's not some general theory about how women and men are generally supposed to... No. 
within marriage and within the church, relationships that are supposed to be loving, nurturing, self-giving, there are some differentiations made. But it is not a big, wide-sweeping thing about what generally makes men men and women women. You don't get that. There is a distinction, but you don't get that. On the other hand, we tend to have liberal uh, theories as well, grand unified theories of gender, in which uh, they recognize on the one hand that there are abuses of, that go on when some differentiations are made, and that, those, and that there are aspects of gender that are culturally located, that look different from culture to culture. And that is true, but on the other hand, it tends to make all of gender performative. Dismissing, of course, biological realities. And more importantly, missing the promise of covenantal love. In which some differentiation is important. Now, that's all kind of abstract, and maybe that's not super important. Maybe it is. I don't know. We can talk about it more. But the point is this, right? That they're given a marriage. And they're given to one another in that. And they're called to leave other commitments behind and cling to that. And that's why, again, we, we mentioned, like, you can, you can tell there's erotic imagery here. And this is why, you know, sex is always in the Bible considered to be a thing that belongs in marriage. Because it is important. That actually is the recognition that it is powerful and significant, that it is a meaning-making thing, but it's saying this, you don't want to be vulnerable with somebody that hasn't actually committed to you. Because if you do, what you're doing is using one another. It's a vulnerability that will inevitably lead to disappointment. Instead, it's a gift meant to, meant to put into practice what is, should be at the heart of marriage is that you put the other before yourself. You're thinking of the other's interests before your own. That ought to be sacrificial. So look, if you're married already, what we're being reminded is to think of the other person as more significant than yourself. It's really kind of that simple, isn't it? I mean, I'm not saying it's simple in practice. <laughs> it's that simple in principle. And if you're not married, it means that's what you should be looking for. If you're looking. And again, you don't have to. But if you are, that's the kind of character that you're looking for. Is that kind of person. I, I remember one of my... Uh, former college students, uh, I, was, I was talking with her a couple years after she, got, after she had graduated, and she was telling me she was dating this guy, and he had just proposed. And, you know, so I, I asked her, I said, well, what, I said, what, what do you like about him? Just, I was just kind of curious, you know, how would she say that? And her answer was a fantastic answer. <laughs> she didn't tell me about, you know, what he looked like. She didn't tell me about how he was funny. She didn't tell me. She said, he's kind. And I thought, ah. <laughs> right? It was this character that struck her more than anything else. 
So there is, with bound up within this relationship with Adam and Eve, there's friendship, there's marriage, but it's also the church. Because as we've been saying, the, the whole point of humanity, you know, multiplying, uh, it, it was to spread the borders of the Garden of Eden to fill the whole earth. So the whole earth would be a place where God dwelled with us. They are supposed to be a community of worship. Obviously, it's just two of them for the time being, right? But the goal, of course, is to be the household of God. Funny how that language is used throughout the New Testament over and over and over again to describe the church. is the household of God. We are made to be those who worship. We talked about that some last week. And so Adam and Eve are called to encourage one another in that worship of God. They are, as it were, a little church here. Now, I don't recommend trying to make your family a church. Um, Things get weird real quick. Uh, But the church is a place where we see families and friendships brought together and become something else, something new. A space opens up for hospitality that is not available to us any other way. Where we can really care for the needs of others, bear their burdens, without it crushing our, you know, any one person's finances, any one person's resources in terms of empathy and care, is that we're called to care for others together. It's also in a world in which we have actually multiplied and filled the earth, supposed to be a cross-cultural community. A place where those who are not like one another come together. Because there is a common concern here. The most important common concern, I would say, right? That for the kingdom of God. And so we recognize and we come together and we should be giving to one another, generous to one another with what we have. And this is is the thing. Generosity is not merely about your finances. It's not merely about your skills. It is a generosity of heart as well. To weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. That's what Paul tells the church to do in Romans 12 is to be a place that listens to one another, that celebrates the amazing things that are going on, and that laments the difficult things. That is a tall order, because churches divide on all sorts of, in all sorts of ways, right? We tend to divide on economic fronts. It's kind of awkward if you feel like you're the wealthiest person in the church. It's also kind of awkward if you feel like you're the poorest person in the church, right? That is a difficult place to be. So we tend to kind of cluster that way. We tend to kind of cluster in ethnic groups. Because these people understand what I'm doing. And like white people, we are an ethnic group. We tend to sort of cluster that way. Now, look. I'm not saying any one church can be the new heavens and the new earth with every tribe, tongue, and nation all together at once here. But that is what we are called to aspire to. 
And there's certainly plenty of work to do in Charleston, isn't there? And that history is deep. But we're called then to be a church as, we, as we're hospitable, as we're cross-cultural, to be accountable to one another, but also encouraging one another. And this is what is often missing when we think we can be a church to ourselves. And what scares us is the accountability piece, and I get that. You don't want to, kind of don't want people to know your mess. But what we miss when we cut ourselves off is also the encouragement. That's why it is always fatal spiritually when we cut ourselves off from the church. And that is a real challenge in the pandemic, isn't it? I mean, we're all living this. To some extent, we are cut off from one another. We are trying to figure out what it looks like to possibly be together in different ways. And look, some of you are here this morning to worship. Some of you are at home. And that's not a criticism of anybody's choice in that way. It is to say, though, that we need to push into, lean into, what does it mean to love one another in the midst of this? And look, you may feel comfortable being here. Awesome. Great. But are you just filling a seat? Or are you actually pursuing others to love them? You may not feel comfortable being here. It's possible. In fact, I know some of you don't. (laughs) But are you still leaning in to what it means to connect with those in the church, to encourage one another? Because the church is essential. It is essential because it is our chief end to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Which I guess gets us to our last point about loving God. You see, all those human relationships, which are all kind of bound up in that Adam and Eve relationship, Uh, are secondary. You see, the tree is standing here, and we're going to get, we're to talk more about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in a couple weeks, but the tree is standing there as a symbol to remind us of who we ought to prioritize. In fact, it is the very question, who will we listen to? Will we listen to God first? In You know the story, we don't. Adam and Eve didn't. And that is lived out in our lives every day. That we don't. And so with all this relationship talk, we we can't really have an honest discussion about it if we don't acknowledge that, in fact, these relationships often fail us. Uh, And that is the fruit of not listening to God. Our friendships fail us. Sometimes arguments or betrayals come in. Sometimes we simply lose track of people from a different phase of our life. You remember how essential your high school relationships felt like when you were in high school? Some of you are in high school. But as you get older, how many do you keep up with? Maybe some. But for the most part, those grow thinner as the years go on. The same thing goes for college, and the same thing goes when you live in a different place along the way. We let each other down. Marriages. I mean, every marriage has its struggles. 
That's just fact. Some go through severe hardships, and some do fall apart. Churches fail us. Sometimes the church forgets what it's there for in the first place. And it devolves into arguing about things that are, at best, secondary. At worst, not even worth discussing very much. The passion dies out for the gospel. And sometimes evil even tears it apart from the inside. And of course, we fail God. Sometimes we walk away angrily, spectacularly, and sometimes we just slowly forget. We may not openly reject God, but we practically disregard Him in our lives. So love often fails, but the love of God never fails. The love of God never fails. Some of us might say that he has failed us. I don't know. I don't know everybody's story in here. I don't know what you're struggling with. And I know what you mean. I know I've felt that way myself at times. Perhaps sometimes you feel that God has let you down. And I have, you know, more times than I care to remember heard that story. That God let me down. But what it does seem to me that most of those stories return to over and over and over again is that God didn't give some particular thing that you wanted. Or God asked you, called you, to refrain from doing something you wanted to do. But here's the deal. The Bible tells a different story. Here's how, here's how the, the Apostle Paul tells that story. In Ephesians 1, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. It's a mouthful. It's one long run-on sentence in the Greek, if you wanted to know. This is what it's telling us, though, is that God's love never fails. What Paul is reminding us is that while God doesn't give you everything you want, he never gives up on you. While God doesn't give you everything you want, he gives us himself. That what God has done is bring us near. And he knew before creation... Before Adam and Eve were formed, before the Spirit was hovering over the deeps, what it would cost him. Before all that, he knew. 
He knew what he's doing. He knew the heartache. He knew, in fact, the heartache that he would have to take into himself. That the son would cut himself off from the love of the father. Remember that Trinitarian stuff we were talking about? God being whole and complete in his love and his joy. That what God chose to do was introduce heartache into his own heart. His own life for you. God's love never fails. And it is true that while God's love never fails, he may ask us to do things we don't particularly want to do. He may not give us the things that we want, but he has given us himself. And even as we face hardships and all those other relationships, we're reminded that it is because he has done all of that that we can have courage, that we can have strength, that we can have comfort even in the midst of difficulty to face what is hard because he is pouring the love of God into our hearts by his Spirit. God's love never fails. He didn't leave us in sin. And in fact, when he bought us back, he's poured love into our hearts by the Spirit. You were made for love. You were made for love, to love and to be loved. And the only source that makes us courageous enough and tender-hearted enough to pursue it is God's love opened up to us in Christ and poured out by the Spirit. So take heart. God's love never fails, and it will not fail you. Let's pray. Father, we know that uh, we fail others often. We fail you often. And yet, our confidence is not in our own ability to love others well. But it is your love that never lets us down. That reminds us before the creation of the world, before all this began, you knew exactly what it would cost you. Because of Jesus, we come to you with confidence. We can deal with others in confidence. Not that we have all the answers, not that we know how to fix everything, but that we can love others sacrificially. That we can love them without fear. Because even now, the love of your Spirit is being poured into our hearts. Encourage us and strengthen us. In Christ, we ask for his sake. Amen.